Come here, Jones. What do you make of this? Down in the ice. By Jove, sir. It seems to be some sort of primitive audio magazine. Perfectly preserved within the glacier. If only we could hear what wisdom that bygone age had for us. Let's take it back to the ship and see if L3 can decode the audio. is really, really great. They serve up music on a plate. Tim's luscious locks and shiny plate make them the very best of mates. So welcome to the pod. Sam has the news. Tim does reviews. Political news. Well, days of the news. Welcome back to the freshly defrosted classical music pod. In today's episode, we'll be profiling the new culture secretary, Nadine Dorries. We lay bare one of music's most flagrant pickpockets. And polish up a rough diamond by the Italian Baroque composer, Antonio Caldara. Sam, you'll know that as part of the recent cabinet reshuffle, Nadine Dorries has been promoted from health minister to secretary of state for digital culture, media and sport, replacing our pal Olive Dowden. Yeah, he's been pitted and tossed aside, replaced by Nadine the Dream. Mm-hmm. She is the 10th Culture Secretary in 11 years, and her brief includes setting policy across broadcasting, sport, the arts, museums and tourism, as well as helping those sectors recover from the pandemic. Also overseeing cybersecurity and the prevention of online harm to young people, setting the level of the BBC licence fee, choosing whether to privatise Channel 4, picking a new head of Ofcom, and heading a upcoming review of the way football is run in England. Which is a lot of stuff. So to help her gauge her suitability for the role and perhaps predict whether or not she's good news for the arts sector, I've put together a quiz called Who Are You, Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries? First up, Nadine Bargery was born in Liverpool in 1957 to a Protestant mother and Irish Catholic father. She mm. claims her great-grandfather, George Bargery, was among the founding members of which Premiership Football Club? I think it's Everton. I think, like, the blue side of Liverpool, isn't it? Correct. Doris has spoken about growing up in Breck Road, Anfield, one of the most deprived streets in the country, and receiving free school meals. We used to hide from the rent man. Some days there would be no food, she told The Guardian in 2015. So how did Dorries vote in Labour's motion last year calling for free school meals to be extended over school holidays until Easter 2021? Uh, I bet it's against, isn't it? It was against. I find that it's very confusing. It's sort of the same impulse as the public school boys. Like, I went through a harrowing experience of getting bullied, so I'm going to bully the next person. Mm. She's like, I've been through this harrowing experience. Rather than try and prevent the next people going through it, I too am going to make the situation as difficult as possible. Incidentally, she's 
also consistently voted for a reduction in spending on welfare and housing benefit, which, as you say, some people might find surprising considering her background. Question three. After leaving school, Dory's trained as a nurse working between London and Liverpool before moving into the private sector. She was a medical rep for Ethicla Limited, set up her own childcare business and later worked as a director for healthcare company Bupa. But did she attack or defend the government's offer in March of a 1% pay rise for nurses? I reckon she supported it, didn't she, Tim? Yeah, she did. She told Good Morning Britain... I hope that nurses will feel, and I hope that I would feel, and understand that we have to prioritise saving people's jobs and saving people's livelihoods. Because, you know, without a strong economy, without people in work, without the business grants, without protecting employers, there will be no funding for the NHS. Can I dig her in just a little bit there? Yeah, Because sure. I think, uh, I mean, A, that 1% pay rise is, of course, now a pay cut once you've factored in your national insurance rise and the rising cost of inflation. Um, and I know that it, it's ended up being 3%, but that is actually also still a pay cut if you consider those things. But I mean, I know a nurse, and not the great Betty, a separate nurse, who uh, is driven between her appointments. Uh, she's part of a sort of at-home delivery service where she'll go into care homes and um, places to deliver a, a high level of hospital-style care that um, other visiting nurse staff can't. She's paid less than her driver, which uh, I'm sure the driver is worth plenty as well, but it feels like we are undervaluing nurses generally, mm -hmm. and certainly our healthcare staff throughout the country. And it feels like a, a, an economic false dichotomy to me to say that either we can support nurses or the economy. Mm. Um, because nurses aren't putting their money in tax havens. It's money that will stay in the economy and be spent by people. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to energise the economy, then maybe you should pay them more. Far out territory for the classical music part. I know, but I mean, you know, it's, it's culture, isn't it? Yeah, it's culture. Question four. Dorries ran unsuccessfully in the 2001 general election, but in 2005 was elected MP for Mid Bedfordshire, a seat. Great part of the world. Yeah, yeah, a seat. That's where your grandparents are from. It is isn't indeed. It? Yeah, it's a seat that she's retained since. Proposed laws during her time as an MP include a 2008 amendment seeking to reduce the upper limit for abortions from the current 24 weeks of pregnancy to 20, and a 2011 bill that would require girls, but not boys, to be given compulsory lessons in what? I actually know the answer to this. It's abstinence, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, it is. Which is uh, really stupid. And if you want to <laughs> dig into why that is, watch season three of Sex Education on Netflix, which is excellent culture see she has also been at the forefront of some arguably more sensible women's health policy as well she pushed for improved methods of testing for group b streptococcus which affects about 800 babies a year and she's helped shape the first women's health strategy to address inequalities in a national health service that she argues is designed by men for so men. often the core theme of most of the inquiries and the reports that we have and the recommendations are Women are not listened to. And I've experienced that myself. Next question. Doris has been a member of the Health and Social Care, Energy and Climate Change and Science and Technology Select Committees. But what was her meeting attendance for the latter during the 2008-9 and 2009-10 sittings? Oh, I, I have no idea, but I imagine it's bad if we're bringing it up. <laughs> it's zero. If you look at the, zero. If you look at the minutes uh, on the uh, Technology Select Committee official 
government website for those two years they, they, the, the committees had slightly different names but over those two sittings she is on the committee but she uh, comes up precisely zero times did you have a book to finish much like boris and his uh, his biography that he had to get done oh, yes, and missed course. all the covid stuff we'll get on to the books oh, in a minute we'll get on to the books in 2012, she became a contestant on ITV's I'm a Celebrity, I Get Me that. Out of Here, apparently hoping to use her appearance to raise awareness of issues she's interested in, such as the aforementioned abortion law. She wasn't, however, the first sitting MP to appear on a reality TV show. Who spent three weeks on Celebrity Big Brother in 2006? Ooh, a poser. Um, when he was pretending to be a cat, was George Galloway a sitting MP in... I don't know about the cat business, but he, he is the answer, yes. There's terrible, a couple of minutes of footage you can watch of, I think it's Jermaine Greer pretending he's a cat and like stroking his head and feeding him imagined milk. It's pretty... I genuinely feel ill thinking about that. <laughs> now, would you like me to be the cat? <laughs> On returning home, she was suspended by the Conservative Party and forced to apologise for failing to declare her fee. Good. But a year later, her fortunes changed when she was signed up on a six-figure book deal. She joined a long line of MPs turned novelists. Can you name three? Uh, I have read and enjoyed several Geoffrey Archer books, uh, which I think just <laughs> demonstrates... in prison. <laughs> anybody thinks that I, you know, I have a blinkered view. Uh, I've I enjoyed them. They're good stuff. Uh, Chris Mullen as well, I think, uh, old Labour MP, okay. used to write um, write some quite good fiction. I think if I remember, it's, uh, very British coup. I think it's by him. Well, you could have also had uh, Douglas Hurd, mm. Edwina Curry, Anne Widdicombe, and Sir Winston Churchill. It's like my anti-dream dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> God, can you imagine? Doris has since written a number of best-selling saga novels, including the Four Streets Quartet series, set in a tight-knit Irish Catholic community in 1950s Liverpool. Head of Zeus, Doris publisher, says it has sold 2.5 million of her books to wow. date. Though the critics have not always been kind. Christopher Howes, writing for the Daily Telegraph, thought The Four Streets was the worst novel I've read in ten years. <sighs> While crime novelist Abir Mukherjee said that calling Nadine Dorries an author is like saying cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer was a chef. Oh, okay, fair. Let's support Nadine. She's a creative person putting her thing out there. Yeah, and you know what? I was reading her blog quite extensively. <laughs> And a really long time it. And um, one of the comments was during this time in a lot of interviews, she was asked, quote unquote, I was asked the old chestnut, where do you find the time over and over? And no male MP who writes a book is ever asked that question. So mm -hmm. interesting to hear Doris pointing out an instance of everyday sexism. To finish, I'm going to read out some lines and I need you to tell me whether they are Nadine or Latrine, i.e. from one of her novels or from the toilet of my mind. First up, no one in their right mind ever had a bad word to say about a potato. It's glorious. Uh, right. I mean, I think that that's your own work, Tim. That is Nadine. Ah, but at the moment, the Venn diagram, in my mind, overlaps quite significantly. Carry on. <laughs> Jesus, Mary and Joseph, you'd have thought there was a crock of gold at the bottom of that Guinness. Surely that's you. 
that is latrine but she does say jesus mary and joseph and she also mentions guinness in the first novel 28 times okay so So she's giving that irish uh, roots a real excavation yeah absolutely next he might have been about to have sex for the first time in almost two years he might have been angry and have lost all reason but he wasn't going to spill the guinness well now you've given me that guinness tip off i feel like that's nadine that's nadine it's a great line finally when the hot sun has gone to bed and the underwater lights in the aquamarine pool twinkle and beckon the jug of sangria on the table next to me screams more ice the heady scent of bougainvillier fills the air and jose gonzalez plays seductively in the background wooing me egging me on I'd say that the drama that you found in your vocal delivery suggests that that is some real writing. That is real Nadine. Nadine. That is genuine Nadine, but it's not from a novel. It's from a 24th of July 2008 blog post, which we'll get onto later, the blog. Anyway, if anyone is interested, Doris has another novel coming out next summer called A Wicked Woman. It is the first in a new series, apparently, so that's very exciting. What a good book. What a good read. Why don't you read? From the library Insightful and engaging With a good laugh on every page Think I'll recommend To a friend What can we expect from Nadine Dorries's tenure as Culture Secretary? I mean, according to The Spectator, who know a thing or two about the Tories... Yes. Dorries will, quote-unquote, oversee a more punchy attitude to the culture war aspect of her brief, which feels fitting, considering her history of (laughs) social justice gaps. I'm thinking of 2012's Gay Marriage is a policy which has been pursued by metro elite gay activists and need to be put back in the same bin. That's a horrible thing to say. Not a nice thing to say. Or, apparently I'm racist because I think Chuck Amuna looks like Chris Eubank. We actually recently retweeted this one. Left-wing snowflakes are killing comedy, tearing down historic statues, removing books from universities, dumbing down the panto, removing Christ from Christmas, and suppressing free speech. And then two years later, saying Boris Johnson didn't go far enough when comparing Muslim women who wear burqas to post boxes and bank robbers. I should say, on gay marriage, she has since admitted voting against the policy is... Her biggest regret as an MP. Well, I suppose positive to see or hear that she can move on an issue, uh, given the Mm -hmm. recent history of stubbornness from uh, the Tory party. That might be something that gives us hope in the music sector. I don't like the sound of a more punchy approach to the culture wars. Uh, My most recent memory of classical music getting bound up in such things is the last night of the proms, Rule Britannia, last year. And it was such a... It just brought the whole thing down and lower. No one benefited from it. Everything mm-hmm. felt muddier, murkier for uh, the way that that conversation was conducted in bad faith when people were trying to make a positive out of a tough situation. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to more of that if no. that's on the agenda. I think we also need to be wary about her aggressive stance with the BBC. We got a taste of that at Conservative Party conference recently where she gave a speech condemning the groupthink at the corporation and saying it was staffed by people whose mum and dad worked there, quote-unquote, which is ironic considering she employed two of her daughters as staff in her parliamentary office. But anyway, fingers crossed she doesn't do too much damage there. Imagine the 
British music scene without the BBC. Like it just mm-hmm. it'd or be the film bereft. and TV scene and the yeah, you know, all the countless things it has the prompts. I wonder whether it's important to say that her experience isn't entirely irrelevant, at least compared to Oliver Dowden. Mm. Doctor Who scriptwriter Gareth Roberts, for example, said that while she may not win plaudits from the arts world, quote unquote, as her book sales show, she has a quality her detractors and let's face it, her peers and predecessors will never have, i.e. an understanding of what people actually enjoy. Yeah, it's good. I think that is a good point. I also spent last night scouring her infamous blog. That's the one that's seventy uh, percent fiction, right? Or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that one for arts buzzwords like music and theatre. And I found some evidence that she at least has some appreciation for the sector. Twenty second of January two thousand and seven. I really love classical crossover. For example, Cantemus Girls Choir singing Coldplay's "I Will Fix You." Or William Orbit's Adagio for Strings, which is a kind of trance version of a yeah, classical grade. Yeah, I do grade. quite like that. A true purist reading this will be squirming. True classical music does, however, have the ability to reach down into your very soul and open up your mind. It helps you to feel. To feel is something, as a politician, you really need to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to draw boundaries around what is and isn't classical music. I think that there is good and bad music. <laughs> I haven't heard the version of the Coldplay, but I have heard the William Orbit and I do like it. So there you go. There we go. But Sam, is an appreciation of classical crossover enough? And does a culture secretary even need to be into culture? These are the questions we should be asking. In an ideal world, yeah, that kind of experience is going to play into helping you deliver a really nuanced and thoughtful support to that sector because you've, you've lived within it and worked within it. However, the recent track record of this department is not one of competency. Mm. So once you're above a threshold of competency, then maybe your experience and your ideas can begin to be expressed. I'm yet to see great evidence uh, from Dean that she is a wonderful decision maker. Mm. Such things as the I'm a celebrity or the, the gaffes or the decision to support wacky bit of high heels uh, legislation that would have kept people having to wear high heels uh, even if they didn't want to in their employment. Those kind of odd bandwagons to jump on and um, what I would consider poor decision-making suggest to me that even if she has got this experience, she's not going to have the basic level of competency to deliver the things that people need before you can get onto the stuff that it could actually be helpful for her to have experience in. What's in the middle of that hot cross bun? Ostrich anus. <laughs> you got to pick a pocket or two. Joseph Haydn's Symphony Number no. 104, composed in first movement of Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 2 in C major, composed between 1845 and 1846. The trio sonata from Bach's A Musical Offering, composed in 1747. 
the third movement of Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 2. Nimm sie hinden diese Lieder, written by Beethoven in 1816. The finale from Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 2. You got to pick a pocket or two. It is good to be back in the analysis saddle, Tim. Which windmills will we be tilting at today? Well, Panzer, I suggest we take aim at Antonio Caldara and his Starbuck Martyr, written in approximately 1725, an 18-minute-ish long setting for choir and small orchestra. Listen out for some jolly sack butts playing proto-trombone tenor lines. Here's the 16 with some of the opening movement. Whoa there, girl! Who is this Caldera then, other than just an instruction to murder the host of Mock the Week? Caldara. An Italian journeyman composer born in 1670, the son of a violinist who became a chorister at St. Mark's Venice and then worked as Maestro di Capella. Musical master of the chapel. Everywhere, from Mantua to Barcelona, Vienna to Salzburg. A man in motion. Yes. And the first thing I wanted to draw everyone's ears to is a major motor in all of Baroque music, the suspension. Call me Isambard and tell me more. I don't suppose you could explain suspensions through references to changing fashions, could you? Seeing as you've asked so politely, that's no problem at all. A suspension, a lovely juicy thing that sounds roughly like this. A harmonic moment of tension. Yes, and it comes in three parts. Consonants, suspension and resolution. Right. Can I have a consonant, please, Carol? Not that kind of consonant. Consonants. A moment of stable, triadic harmony like this. In our fashion analogy, please transport yourself to the 1950s. A heyday of Mr. Elvis Presley. Oh. Let us consider this note. Our pair of blue suede shoes. It fits in the context around it. Well, those times and fashions, they change. The context around those pair of blue suede shoes shifts, and they no longer become an acceptable fashion decision. Elvis stops being cool, and so does his shoes. They no longer fit the context around them. Similarly, our note... No longer fits the chord around it. Which creates this dissonance. Much like seeing a 1980s punk rocker wearing blue suede shoes, this suspension creates tension that our ears, our very souls, want resolved. And so our troublesome note moves by a step 
downward. Resolving, removing the dissonance. Visiting Russell and Bromley for a new pair of something more current. Here's a moment where Kaldara uses that longing for the suspension to resolve as a motor for the music, dragging us forward to the moment of resolution. What are they singing about, Sam? The text, Starbut Mater, literally translates as propped up mother. But we're not talking about a few too many drinks on Christmas Day, are we? No, but sticking with narratives of domestic tension, we're onto the New Testament. And this 13th century hymn text, written to express Mary's suffering at the foot of the cross, possibly authored by 13th century Umbrian monk, slash part-time dramatist, Jacophone di Todi. Starbit Mater Dolorosa, Juxta Crucem Lacrimosa, Dum Pendebat Filius. At the cross her station-keeping stood the mournful mother weeping, close to her son to the last. It's the first verse of 20 that make up the whole of the Starbuck Mater hymn. And loads of composers have been drawn to this evocative text. Oh, yes. To name but a few famous ones. James Macmillan, Sir James Macmillan. Vivaldi. Haydn. Antonin Dvorak. Norwegian hunk Knut Neisted. Master of the Queen's Moustaches, Carl Jenkins. Famous Belgian Orlando de Lassus. Palestrina. List. And popular French goose impression, Francis Poulenc. None by women there. I don't know of any expressions of Mary's grief written by a woman, but would love to hear about them. If anyone knows of one, tweet or email us, please. Perhaps the best well-known setting of the Starbuck Mater is by Italian prodigy Pergolesi. You might recognise it. Check out the suspensions on this. stone-cold hit that reflects how tragic it was that he was dead by 26. What I liked about getting to know this Caldara for the first time over summer is that because it's a popular text for composers and that pergolese is in your ears already, you can compare what Caldara has chosen to emphasise with what others have, have chosen to bring to the fore. Like different productions of a Shakespeare play or retellings of myth or history. Absolutely. Whereas Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall tells the story of Henry VIII centering Thomas Cromwell's importance, the other Berlin girl puts Eric Banner's Australian accent front and centre. What moments has Caldara chosen to emphasise then? The bit that jumped out to me was the final verse, Quando corpus morietur, or basically when I die while I'm decaying here. How does he draw our attention to it? Well, there's a halt beforehand, and then it restarts with an ear-focusing change of key from G minor to E flat major, which is always a scrummy one, Plus, Caldara brings out the juiciest harmony of the whole piece for his own dying. More excruciating than anything Mary's undergone up until this point, and it keeps bleeding from one suspension into another. Let's have a listen to the latter half of that 40-second long suspension sequence.
Does that emphasis on one's own death make this a self-centred Starbuck martyr, Sam? Ah, well, perhaps. It's an interesting moment to put so much musical energy into. Perhaps he wanted to be on the right side of Pascal's wager and make sure he's covered with heaven whatever happens. I rather like the sound of this piece. Should we all be listening to more Caldara? Is he a neglected composer? Ah, now, my man, we are into the interesting stuff. I've been giving this a little bit of thought, picking over ideas from some of our old interviews, and, of course, scrolling through classical music Twitter like I'm preparing for an Olympic thumb war. And I just don't think it's quite as simple as he's written one good piece, he's a neglected composer. Mm, Expand. Well, my ideas aren't totally formed yet, so let me know what you think. But basically, I'm reckoning that pieces are great because they're great, not because they're written by great composers, right? So Beethoven still has a few duffers in there. Mm -hmm. See our episode on Wellington's Sieg. Yeah, terrible music. And therefore, a composer becomes a great composer by having written many great pieces. Right, the composer is judged by the output, not the other way around. Or at least we'd hope that's what would happen. Absolutely. So there are neglected pieces, like perhaps the Caldara Starbuck Martyr, that I think is worth giving a run out more often than it gets at the moment. It may not be a great, great piece, but it's a good one, at least as good as some of the stuff we hear more regularly. Mm -hmm. But only if there's loads of pieces in his back catalogue that are all good and all being neglected will then Caldara become a neglected composer. One good, rarely heard piece does not a neglected composer make. Okay, then how do we find out about the other pieces? Well, I think people have to do some digging, performing, and actual listening and sharing of their experiences. Maybe some people will be stirred into motion. Powered forward by our fashionable suspension chat. Into exploring more of Caldara and finding out whether this Italian Baroque journeyman is worthy of elevation to status alongside the queens and kings of the canon. Oh. I'm going to use analysis this term to try and set us all off on some similar listening quests. We'll dive into some lesser-known pieces and see if they are underappreciated or getting exactly the lack of attention that they deserve. If you have a candidate in mind, a rare piece you think we all need to get to know a bit better, then get in touch through all the usual channels, and hopefully we'll build the gradual, substantial musical case for more composers being included in the canon. Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog is out there, still circling like a shark in the water, forced to eat a kangaroo testicle. His liver was pecked out by an eagle. What monkey glands are they eating? His dog uh, just made a more sensible contribution uh, than he did. Yes, Kermit the Frog sang. We will take back control of our fisheries. Unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought. He's a very eel-like customer. But it is up to us now to let that lion roar. And time, I think, to put a bit of a tiger in the tank and, and get this thing done. Kermit the Frog. Yes? Kermit the Frog is out there, still circling like a shark in the water. Straight into a massive elephant trap. I swallowed a bug. This is not all about some expensive green act of bunny-hugging. I always bunny-hugging, like you, you, you know what I'm driving at. We send you penguins, and they're the bear. Uh, those are not, that's not my... Uh, I mean, that, that, well... 
Sam, there's somebody you'd like to thank. Yep, a big thank you to Kath Edwards from The 16 for allowing us to use that recording of the Caldara. Oh, it's super juicy. I enjoyed it very much. As always, can I encourage you to give us a like on social media, a subscribe on whatever audio platform you're listening to, and to tell your friends about us. They'll think you're cool. They will. As already mentioned, if you're feeling super generous, then please do visit our coffee donations page. Other than that, I don't think we've got any more waffle to cover. Sam, are you done with waffle? Waffle out. seductively in the background wooing me, egging me on. There is a beautiful batik print on the balcony wall of the Madonna and Child. It's looking down on me. The warm sea breeze is causing the candles on the table to flicker, playing tricks with my eyes. Every time I look up, the Madonna tuck-tuts at me and shakes her head in mild reproval. Unfortunately, I don't think even the Holy Mother can help me once I have blogged on. It's between me, the circling shoal of out-to-get-me piranhas, a loaded gun, an exocet missile, a suicide wish, the chief whip, and the save button. I wonder why more MPs don't blog.